Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife and our cardiac surgery crash course. As we mentioned before, the cardiac OR can be a daunting place for any medical student or resident who finds themselves on a cardiac surgery rotation. Our cardiac surgery crash course is a short series focused on high yield topics to help introduce students and residents to cardiac surgery prior to or during a cardiac surgery rotation. My name is Jessica Millar. And I'm Aaron Williams, a cardiothoracic surgery fellow at Duke. And we will be your hosts for today's episode. We hope you find our series useful. And if you have any suggestions or requests, please feel free to reach out to us by email, which you can find in the show notes for this episode. So today's topic will be coronary artery disease and how we treat this surgically with coronary artery bypass grafting or cabbage. Today, we're going to break down patient presentation, workup, indications, the operation, and some postoperative complications. Now, this is a classic and common operation that pretty much every medical student resident will come across at some point during their medical career. Okay, so let's get started and jump right in. Jess, why is coronary artery disease important, first of all? That's a great question, Aaron. It's super important because of how common and prevalent it is. Coronary artery disease, or CAD, remains the single largest cause of death in the U.S., according to the CDC, causing more than 600,000 deaths a year. It now affects more than 12% of the population, and this number continues to increase. Exactly. So to all the students and residents out there, you will certainly encounter patients with this and help manage them. Now, Jess, next thing's next. These patients are often managed by primary care or cardiology before they see cardiac surgery and consultation. So what is considered the medical management of CAD before they end up getting routed to cardiac surgery? Now, let's not go too crazy, but highlight the main points. All of us obviously want to get to the surgery part of the podcast. All these patients should have what we call risk factor modification, and that's the long-term management of CAD. So first is lipid management. Usually this is in the form of a statin. Usually we try to target patients having a total cholesterol less than 200 and an LDL less than 100, and that's for primary prevention. And you can even go less than 70 for secondary prevention. Next, you want to do blood pressure management. Now, this is usually in the form of ACE inhibitors or beta blockers. Other medicines, though, that can help include thiazides or your calcium channel blockers. Yeah, nice. Those things are all important, Jess. Um, What other comorbidities are extremely important to help identify and manage for these patients? Diabetes management is super important as well. Patients can be on oral medications or even insulin, and we usually try to target their hemoglobin A1C to less than 7. Patients should also be enrolled in physical activity programs and weight management, and most importantly, smoking cessation is so important. Yeah, all right, that's perfect. You're hitting the key points here. So let's transition to the key medications that these patients are on. These are medications that help prevent myocardial infarction and ultimately death. So what are those recommendations for these patients? There are three medications that our students and residents should be aware of, and these include aspirin, 
a beta blocker, and ACE inhibitors. Now, Aaron, can you tell us a little bit more about these medications? Yeah, definitely. An aspirin should essentially be used in all patients with coronary artery disease and should be continued indefinitely. A Plavix or clopidogrel can also be used if they're sort of uh, a contraindication to aspirin. Um, but both of these may be needed if patients have had an acute coronary syndrome or recent PCI. Now, beta blockers are also worth highlighting here. Now, these should be used in patients after acute coronary syndrome or an MI, and they should also be used in patients with some sort of LV um, dysfunction like heart failure or a prior MI. And then lastly, ACE inhibitors are also important, and these should be used in patients with hypertension, diabetes, some sort of decreased EF, um, like maybe less than 40%, um, and then ARBs can also be considered here. Okay, Jess, so how do these patients present when they do? Well, a lot of these patients can present in several different ways. First, they can either present in the form of stable angina or chronic coronary artery disease, or they can present with acute coronary syndrome or ACS. Now, ACS even can present in several different ways too. This could be a non-ST elevation MI or NSTEMI. You could have an ST elevation MI or a STEMI and even just unstable angina. Uh, STEMI is probably the one you're most used to hearing, and that classically will occur from a plaque rupture, which means a plaque will rupture and form a mural thrombus within the coronary artery and causes a complete occlusion of it. And so there's no more blood flow to that area of the heart. In this scenario, you'll see both an increase in your troponins as well as EKG changes. So how about an NSTEMI or unstable angina? Again, slightly different between an NSTEMI and a STEMI. In an NSTEMI and unstable angina, these can occur from several different etiologies. Typically, there's also plaque rupture and thrombosis, but they can also occur from other things such as demand ischemia. So for example, if the heart is pumping too fast and there's just not enough blood to sustain how much work the heart is having to do, a low flow state like low blood pressure, so again, decreased blood flow to the heart, or anemia, so decreased oxygen carrying capacity to the heart. You can also get progressive coronary obstruction or even coronary spasm, such as Prinz Metal's angina. Yeah, no, that's spot on, Jess. All right, so enough of the medical management side of this. Let's talk about the workup and evaluation of these patients. Jess, what are some of the important tests that are crucial to the workup of these patients? These patients will normally get several different types of tests during their workup. At the most basic level, all patients will get some type of lab work, such as uh, CBC, biochemistry, coagulation studies, A1C. They'll usually also get an EKG to show their baseline electrical activity and a chest x-ray as well, which can help give you hints at any sort of chest pathology that might be going on. An echo can also be really important, as this can tell you both about the LV or the left side of the heart and the RV or the right side of the heart function, any valvular issues, and any wall motion abnormalities that might be affected by coronary artery disease. Yeah, exactly. So you'll definitely start out by getting these studies. Um, but I'd say perhaps the most crucial study in the workup of these patients would be a left heart cath. And essentially, this is an angiographic assessment of the coronary arteries. And it allows you to look at coronary anatomy, the degree and location of these stenoses or lesions, and also to determine if a patient's a good candidate for cabbage or not. Now, sometimes you may see this thing called an LV gram, which is contrast injection to look at function, or an aortogram that helps to show the aortic root and size, but these aren't as common. And when we talk about lesions, a left main lesion greater than 50% or a non-left main coronary lesion greater than 70% are considered hemodynamically significant. 
And you may also see some additional info on HeartCats called FFR or fractional flow reserve or something called IFR. And these can help tell you the physiologic nature of a lesion and if it's hemodynamically significant. I won't focus too much on those here and now because it's beyond the scope of this podcast. And then you may also see something called a syntax score. And this is a scoring system given to coronary lesions or blockages in the setting of the total coronary tree anatomy. And then based on this score, you can actually categorize disease burden into certain levels such as intermediate or high disease complexity. And this is built into the AHA ACC guidelines, which we'll get into a little bit later. Okay, Jess, what other studies may people see ordered? So you may also see something called a cardiac viability study ordered, and this can be done for patients with an EF less than 35% or those with ventricular dysfunction that seems to be out of proportion to their coronary disease. In addition, it seems like there's this trend towards getting a non-con chest CT to better evaluate patient's aorta, and that's to look for calcifications, nearby anatomy. You may also see patients getting carotid artery duplex screening for those that have high-risk features, pulmonary function tests for those patients with a history of lung disease. Um, Important to note, though, PFTs, it may not necessarily change surgical management, but can definitely help risk stratify patients before surgery. Yeah, nice, Jess. Yeah. So for all the listeners out there, you definitely may see any or all of these tests performed for a patient being worked up for cabbage. Okay, so let's get into the indications for cabbage. So these are based on the HACC guidelines, and we're going to keep this at the most basic level for our listeners. But if, if you really want to look at the nuances and check out more details, like which things are class one or class two recommendations, I encourage you to pull up the guidelines and go take a look for yourself. Okay, Jess, so what are some of the indications for cabbage? So there are several indications for cabbage, and they include, first, if the left main artery is diseased more than 50%. I want to make a point here. That can also be something called a left main equivalent, which is of the proximal LED and another coronary artery. And again, for the listeners, just remember, left main greater than 50 and non-left main greater than 70 are considered hemodynamically significant. Our second indication for cabbage would be if you have significant three-vessel disease. Yep, totally. And in particular, diabetic patients with three-vessel disease and even two-vessel disease with one of them being the LED, these patients highly benefit from cabbage. Third is disabling angina. That's refractory to medical management. Fourth is for patients who have undergone failed PCI or percutaneous coronary intervention, or if there's unfavorable anatomy for a PCI. Fifth would be for survivors of sudden cardiac death when they are thought to have an ischemic arrhythmia secondary to coronary artery disease. Sixth would be ongoing coronary ischemia, not responsive to maximal medical therapy. And last is patients that have significant coronary lesions that may be undergoing cardiac surgery for another indication, such as an aortic valve replacement. Yeah, Jess, I agree. So these are highly important for everybody listening here. So I just want to recap that one more time. So indications would be left main disease, a left main equivalent, three-vessel disease, angina refractory to medical therapy, failed PCI or unfavorable anatomy, patients with ongoing ischemia that's not responsive to medical therapy, survivals of cardiac death with arrhythmias, and patients with other indications for heart surgery. Now, there are definitely some other indications for cabbage with some nuances, which are in the categories of class two recommendations. So I encourage you to look at those guidelines. But again, we're keeping it very general here for the viewers. Okay, Jess, which particular patient populations have really shown to benefit from cabbage? I'm thinking of two main groups here. 
There's good data to show that several populations really do benefit from cabbage over PCI. And the two populations I think you're thinking of are diabetics as well as patients with a low ejection fraction. There are many important historic trials worth looking at, and these include the Freedom and Stitch trials that discuss these a bit more. And the AHA ACA guidelines have some really good sections about this as well. Yeah. Now, lastly, I'd like to highlight uh, that with some of the complex patient care decisions involved here, these patients should really be discussed at a heart team conference or heart team meeting. This allows a multidisciplinary approach with the surgeons and the cardiologists to discuss patients, so they often essentially get the best care. Uh, Many times, these not-so-straightforward patients may have many uh, prohibitive comorbidities or age that really requires thoughtful discussion about whether someone's going to get a cabbage or a PCI. So it's best to have all these patients discussed together in a multidisciplinary way. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, Jess, I finally think we made it to the actual surgery part of this podcast. So let's do this. Let's talk about what a student or junior resident may encounter when they get to scrub a cabbage for the first time. Yes, we finally hit my favorite part. All right. So Jess, let's start out by talking about conduit options, and then we'll talk about the surgery itself. So there are many options for vascular conduits that may be used in a cabbage. First and most important one is is called the left internal mammary artery or the lima. In general, the lima is used to bypass the left interior descending artery or the LAD when it's indicated. It's so good, it has a 90 plus percent patency rate at 10 years out after surgery. So Jess, what are some of the other conduits out there that you've heard of or read about? Well, you do also have a right internal mammary artery or a REMA, and this may also be used in select patients. We can also use the radial artery as well and harvest that out of a patient's arm. The REMA has pretty similar long-term patency rates to the LEMA, but when you're considering both IMAs or a bilateral IMA harvest, these should really only be used in patients who don't have an excessive risk of sternal complications. So think younger patients, non-diabetics, non-smokers. The radial artery can often be harvested from the non-dominant hand, although in recent years, the radial artery has shown to be not as good as everyone once thought it was in terms of long-term outcomes. Yep, exactly. And then essentially after that, the veins um, harvested from the lower extremities are kind of used otherwise. Um, And we talk about patency rates for those. The 10-year patency rate here is about 50% or so. You may see other comments about other vessels, the right gastroepiploic, the left gastric, the splenic. Others, to be honest, I've never, ever, ever, ever seen any of these used. Don't waste your time worrying about these. Um, Okay, Jess, take us to the operating room. And again, we are going to go through all the major steps of a cabbage. To be honest, there's a lot, but we're going to break it down into sections for the listeners here. All right, let's do it. So the patient will be coming to the operating room and they'll usually get an arterial line placed first. They'll get induced with anesthesia and intubated. And a single lumen tube is usually all you need since we don't do lung isolation like you do in other thoracic surgeries. You will oftentimes see the anesthesiologist then also place a central line, and you may also see them place what's called a swan gas catheter. Uh, If the EF is reduced, if there's pulmonary hypertension, 
or if you're doing valve surgery, really any reason you would need to have right-sided measurements of pressures in the heart. However, whether or not you use a swan gans can be pretty institutional dependent. After that, the patient will be prepped and draped, and anesthesia will also usually drop a TEE probe, so a transesophageal echocardio probe, and that way you can look at the heart function and see if there's any valve issues or any other cardiac issues while you're in the operating room. Other than anesthesia and the OR staff, the other people you might see in an operating room include the perfusionist. They're going to help manage the cardiopulmonary bypass machine or the heart-lung machine during surgery. And if you haven't already listened to our cardiopulmonary bypass podcast, I highly encourage you to go listen to it. And after a final timeout, we will start the case. And this starts with a median sternotomy. After you've cut the sternum in half, you'll place a special retractor, and this will kind of help lift up one side of the sternum while the operating surgeon then can maybe take down, say, the lima if you're planning to use that as your graft. The left pearl space will be opened in order to access lima, and as you're dissecting it out, you have to be very careful that you don't accidentally get into one of your intercostal branches um, because it can cause a ton of bleeding. So those are usually clipped very carefully. Oftentimes people will also give low-dose heparin before clipping, and if you're planning on using a vein as your graft, as you're kind of doing everything in the chest, usually a PA or a resident or a first assist will help harvest the vein endoscopically uh, while all of this is going on. All right, so we talked about getting our conduits ready and doing our sternotomy. Aaron, what's next? No, yes, let's do it. All right, so next we'll typically drop our retractor in. We'll open the pericardium and we'll place some sutures to help keep it open. Um, and then we'll make sure we give our full dose heparin for bypass. And I'll talk about ECTs here in a sec. And then we'll start the process of cannulation. So typically we place a purse string suture in the aorta. And then we put our arterial cannula through this. We de-air it just to make sure we get rid of it in the air. And then we hook it up to the bypass circuit. Then we focus on our venous cannulation. We place stitches in the right atrial appendage in general. Um, and then cannulate this with a, a venous cannula. And that goes down to the IVC. And that also gets hooked up. Then Essentially, both of these cannulas in place will allow us to have the heart-lung machine or the bypass circuit take full control over what the heart and the lungs would normally do, which would be to obviously pump blood to the body and maintain appropriate oxygenation and CO2. So once we have our cannulas in, uh, we wait for our ACT to be okay. And once it's typically 450 plus, we go on bypass and we turn the lungs off. We then cool the patient, typically to about 32 degrees for cabbage, and that helps protect the organs, including the heart, by slowing down the metabolic rate. Then we do several steps before we stop the heart by giving cardioplegia and cross limb the aorta. So what's next, Jess? Yeah, usually then we do some housekeeping with the lima. We will make sure that it's an appropriate length for our conduit. We'll do the same thing too if our plan is to use vein for conduit. And then we'll look at our targets to see where we're going to do our bypass. Usually we'll start on the right side and we'll look at the right coronary artery or the PDA, the posterior descending artery. And then we'll work towards the OM branches off the left circ, and then the diagonals, and then the LED. Oftentimes, a heart retraction device can be placed to help kind of rotate the heart around as we're focusing on these different areas, and you may hear it called a heart basket. We'll then also place our antegrade vent and our cardioplegia cannulas, which also goes into the aorta. This helps give cardioplegia to stop the heart, and it can also help de-air the heart. Yeah, so I want to quickly talk about this, the placement of the cannulas, the cross clamp, the proximals. This confused me as a student. It's probably confusing a lot of other people out there. Maybe it's just me, uh, but let's highlight this. So typically, the proximal anastomoses of these bypass grafts 
usually placed at the most proximal part of the aorta or the lower part if you're looking at it. The aortic root vent or the cardioplegia line is usually uh, just distal to that or above if you're looking at it. Honestly, it, it can be nearby or at the same level. Then distal to that or above that, if you're looking at it, will go the cross clamp. And then at the highest point or the most distal aspect of the aorta near the arch will be your aortic cannula. So this allows blood to go from the bypass machine to the rest of the body. And then meanwhile, when we give the cardioplegia to stop the heart, it'll go retrograde into the coronaries because the cross clamp blocks it from going anagrade. And again, this is the cardioplegia, the solution that helps to stop or rest the heart and also helps protect it. All right, so back to the patient. So once everything is ready, the cross clamp will be applied. And again, that's between the aortic cannula and the cardioplegia line or the root vent. Then we'll give cardioplegia. You may hear terms called del nido or plegia saw, which are different types of cardioplegia. Um, del nido is kind of the newer hot thing right now. It can last about an hour um, with about 1,200 cc's given. Um, but you may also hear plegia saw, um, but this is one that you kind of have to give in doses more frequently. Again, this will stop the heart from beating so you can operate on it. And essentially, it'll also protect the heart by slowing down metabolism since it won't be beating. And then we typically also put a little bit of ice on the heart to cool it down um, to further help protect it because hypothermia has been shown to have some beneficial effects. So what comes next, Jess? So next, we'll position the heart the way we need it to, to be able to do all of our anastomoses. Typically, we'll do all of our distals first, and then we'll sew all of the proximal portions of our grafts, although occasionally you may do a proximal as you go around. To do this, though, you have to use very fine sutures. So typically we use something like 7-0, and it's performed in an end-to-side style for our anastomoses. Again, we usually go from the right side of lesion, so the right coronary artery, to the OMs, to the diags, and then lastly, the LAD. We'll then trim the grafts in terms of length in order to reach the aorta. After this, we then make small holes on the aorta, and this is so we can sew the proximal part of our anastomosis, or the proximals, as you'll probably hear them called. We suture the proximal parts of the vein, or the radial grafts, to the aorta using 6-0 suture this time. Sometimes we may need to remove the root vents and use this as a proximal site, and other times we don't, and we can use it for de-earing and remove it later once we're done with, almost done with surgery. Once we've sewn all of our grafts in place, we will de-air the aorta, the cross clamp will come off, and we'll check all of our anastomoses for bleeding and fix anything that needs to be fixed. Sometimes the heart also, as we're coming off of cardiopulmonary bypass, may need to be defibrillated or shocked. And that's just because it's recovering from the cardioplegia. Exactly. So then after this, it's all about working towards getting out of the operating room. Usually we place atrial and ventricular wires in the epicardium, which then come out through the skin. So you guys will see that. We then check the echo just to make sure there aren't any surprises and the heart looks okay in terms of function uh, and no major issues or changes from the pre-echo. After that, um, we'll end up weaning the patient from bypass, we'll give protamine to reverse the heparin, and then we'll end up taking out the aortic and the venous cannulas. We also check the echo yet again, just to make sure everything keeps looking good and there's no concerns. Then it's just a matter of drying up, positioning the chest tubes, placing some wires, and then closing the skin, and then we're off to the ICU. All right, Jess, so what happens in the ICU? Usually people will remain intubated in the ICU for about three to six hours, but then we'll try to get them extubated relatively quickly if they're doing okay. This can be dependent on a lot of things. We want to make sure there isn't any bleeding or any other reasons why we would need to take the patient back to the operating room. 
But there is really good data for fast-tracking patients or getting them extubated sooner, again, within that three to six-hour window. Yeah, exactly, Jess. So before we get too far down the post-operative course, the students, the residents may hear something about something called an off-pump cabbage. So I just want to highlight that real quick. So this definitely isn't as common as an on-pump cabbage, but it may be something that you see in patients that are high risk, have a bad aorta for clamping, or they may just may not have the reserve to tolerate a bypass run. Um, however, it, it definitely may be harder and have a higher risk of incomplete revascularization compared to an on-pump cabbage. So I just wanted to throw that out there. So, all right, so back to the scenario. Once we're back in the unit, what are some of the complications that we care about in these patients? So the first is probably post-operative bleeding, and this is one of the most common complications. It can be secondary to thrombocytopenia, platelet dysfunction, or any sort of abnormality in the clotting cascade. Typically, we say the first hour is free, but oftentimes people will take patients back to the operating room for bleeding when it's more than 400 cc's per hour, 300 cc's for two hours, or 200 cc's for four hours, or most importantly, if you're bleeding and you suspect cardiac tamponade. If you suspect cardiac tamponade, then you may just have to open the chest emergently at bedside in order to help the patient. Yeah, that's exactly the move. That's what you got to do there to make that happen. And that's a clinical diagnosis. So I agree, that's very important. So some other things that we worry about and concerned about, AFib, atrial fibrillation, which is also a very common one. That actually occurs in about 20 to 40% of patients. Patients who are older age, have longer cross-clamp times, and COPD, they're more likely to get it, interestingly. There are also some things that we can do to help out maybe prophylactically. And these include beta blockers, uh, amiodarone, as well as atrial pacing. In addition, low cardiac output syndrome can also happen, and this is where a patient may need ionotropic support most commonly, less commonly mechanical circulatory support. And usually we define this as a cardiac index less than two, despite optimized heart rate, rhythm, preload, and afterload. And this often you know, occurs in about 5 to 10% of patients. So Jess, what are some other things? Give me a couple more. Some other postoperative complications that you might see can be pulmonary dysfunction, you could have neurologic dysfunction, kidney injury, or early graft occlusion. Now, really, these things can mean pneumonia, atelectasis, phrenic nerve injury, stroke, acute kidney injury, thrombotic vein occlusion, secondary to some technical error, but you may see any or all of these. Yeah, agreed. Those are definitely worth highlighting for the listeners for sure. And in terms of overall mortality, cabbage can have 30-day mortality somewhere between 1% to 3% on average. However, advanced age, urgency of the case, smokers, low EF, uh, diabetics, and patients with other bad comorbidities really put the patients at higher risk. So it's definitely important to stratify these patients before surgery. And I'll be honest, the STS calculator, risk calculator, it's the total way to go here. So Jess, I think that's all I got here. I think we crushed this for the listeners. Yeah, I think we did. We successfully covered coronary artery disease and cabbage. And so we really hope this episode was a helpful introduction to coronary artery disease and how we manage it surgically with cabbage. Be sure to look out for future episodes in our cardiac surgery crash course. Again, everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, shout outs to everybody. We hope you took away some good knowledge in the realm of cardiac surgery. Jess, uh, what do you think? Can I say it? Yeah, go ahead, Aaron. You can say it. All right. Until next time dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. 
Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.